You may have a seat. Hey, man, I tell you what, I don't know if you realize it or not, but that, that word hallelujah means holy. Hallowed is Yahweh. It's a word of worship and adoration. The Bible tells us that the beings around the throne never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. You know, when we gather together like this, this is about believers getting together. Sure, we know that there are those who are watching online perhaps, and some perhaps that are with us from time to time that, uh, you know, have a different opinion about things. But when they gather together and they participate with us, they recognize that God's people are there to worship the Lord and to hear a word from Him. And I just got to tell you this morning, as we look at God's Word, I'm just uh, so grateful for the opportunity that we had to go to Cayman Brack this past year. We just got back last Sunday, and I was so grateful for those that made it possible for us to go. A number of you gave, a number of you participated. We had a fantastic trip. There were a number of kids that made decisions for the Lord, and we had a fantastic team that went. Everybody pitched in and did their part, and it was just a wonderful experience. Now... Pastor Sean will be taking some of our students to Puerto Rico this afternoon. I think they're leaving about 1 o'clock. And, uh, and some of them just got back from Atlanta, and they've had some other mission stuff going on this summer. And so it's so exciting to be a part of a church that is actively involved. I don't know whether you know this or not, but our church is, is involved in ministries throughout the week. The gym is being used by different groups during the week. Uh, we've got the Choices Pregnancy Center, which is helping young families and young women find a way for them to uh, help their babies to be born and to flourish in a new home. We have our clothing ministry and our food ministry, Caring Hands, that's providing food and providing clothing every week to those who, who are in need. And I'm just so grateful for what God's doing here. We have a prayer room ministry that is 24-7. You can go in there anytime as a prayer warrior, and you can pray over the many requests. And so God is working mightily in this church, and I'm just so grateful to be a part of it. And I'm so grateful for those in this church and in our community that make these things possible. How many of you have ever had an occasion to watch a professional boxing match? Anybody ever had that opportunity? Maybe you've seen it on TV. Maybe you've actually been there. Uh, how about this? How many of you, probably more of you, have had an opportunity to go and, and to witness or to watch on TV a professional wrestling match? Anybody here? Ever done that? Man, I tell you what, what, what excitement that is. Of course, we know it's a lot of drama, but I remember years ago as a young boy watching, uh, let's see, what was it? It was the World Wrestling Federation, and it was from Florida here. And, and, and when I was a kid, me and my brother would sit there, and we'd watch the wrestling. Man, that was exciting. Oh, Wahoo McDaniel was up there, and, and, and so many others. And, and it was from right here in central Florida. Man, it was fantastic. And after the wrestling match was over, my brother and I would wrestle, and he throw me all over the room and one day he threw me into the window and I busted the window and my dad had to come fix it but it was okay we were having a great time <laughs> you guys know what I'm talking about I mean and it was really exciting when they got really mad you know and they picked up chairs and they're like oh no he's gonna hit that guy over the head with a chair and and I know that a lot of that is drama but what is not drama is the fact that there are guardrails around the scope of this world and around this country 
that are designed by God to keep us from flying out of the ring. From taking the chaos that's in the middle of the ring in the fight and it's spreading into the crowd and destroying and harming others. There are ropes that go around that ring that keep things contained. And I have a feeling, my friends, that in our world today, a number of entities are trying to dismantle those boundaries that keep this nation and keep our world in check. You know, I was just thinking about uh, this passage out of uh, Acts chapter 9 this morning, and it, it, it kind of goes along with the idea of, uh, of, of people who are behind the scenes. You know, in, in a, on a wrestling uh, stage or a wrestling mat, there, there are these, these posts that are in the corners, and, uh, and they have these things called turnbuckles, and these things hold the ropes in place. And, and without these things, everything gets a little bit crazy. And, and we don't really think about the turnbuckles on a wrestling mat or in a boxing arena or anything like that, but they are crucial to protecting, not just those who are on the mat, but those who are outside of it as well. And this morning, as we look at God's Word, we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture that highlights the role of rope holders. Rope holders in the church, people like you, who maybe don't have a, sta- a platform uh, stance, so to speak, but you've got a behind-the-scenes uh, ministry that God has called you to, and it's vital to the work of the church. It's vital to the growth of the church. It's vital to the opportunity for this church to be fruitful for the kingdom of God. And without the rope holders, the church will fail in what God has called her to do. Not because God is not sufficient. He is sufficient. He can do anything whenever He chooses to. But He has set up the church in such a way so that every member has a part to play. So I want to ask you, if you would, to please take your Bible and go to Acts chapter 9. And as you're getting to Acts chapter 9, you might also want to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and just put a, a I guess put a bookmark or a finger in that passage of Scripture because we're going to use both this morning. And I'm going to ask if you would to please stand with me out of reverence for God's Word. Acts chapter 9, beginning with verse number 23. And as you're standing, let me just set the scene for you now. The Apostle Paul is in a city called Damascus. The Apostle Paul was on the road to Damascus when he got saved. And then after he got saved, God did a work of grace in his life through the the disciple named Ananias and and others. And then at some point, we think maybe he went to Arabia. We know he was in Arabia for about three years, and it was kind of a silent time, a quiet time. I suppose it was that time when the Lord was really fully revealing himself to Paul in such a way that he would understand the connection between the Old Testament promises and predictions of Messiah and the New Testament and the coming of Christ. And now he's in Damascus. And the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 9, these words, verse 23, When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. 
And now if you'll go ahead and turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. By the way, if you notice that passage where it refers to Saul, Saul was the Hebrew name of Paul. Paul is the, the, the Greek name or the Gentile name, which he adopted after his salvation. But at this point, Luke identifies him as Saul. The Jews plotted to kill him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul gives us a, 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 an autobiographical account of this episode. And in this episode now that we're about to read, I want you to understand that Paul puts the escape from Damascus on the same level as his thorn in the flesh. He links them together with the idea that when he is weak, God is strong. He links both of them together so that we might see that human pride and that the potential for pride in Saul, who became Paul, was so great that God gave him a thorn in the flesh, but God also did something in his life as he escaped from Damascus, and we're going to learn about that. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and now Paul is defending his apostleship to those who think he should have been more forceful and more powerful than he actually believed he was. So here's what he says in verse 30, if I must boast... I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of, our, of the Lord Jesus Christ, He who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Artus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this morning. Now, Lord God, we pray that you might speak to each one of us as individuals. Father, help your word to be received without complaint. Help us, O oh God, to hear what your spirit is saying to each of us in this passage. And Lord, we're so grateful that you guide and direct us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Bible tells us in the book of Matthew that Jesus talked about the blessed estate of some of his choice people. He said in this passage in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is blessed are those who recognize their spiritual poverty and long for God to, to help them. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The, the Bible tells us, and the promise of the Lord is that those who are mourning because of the trials and the travails of life and their commitment to Christ, that they are blessed because of that commitment and because of their suffering. They're blessed. They will be comforted. You can be seated now if you'd like. The Bible says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is not blessed are the meek. This is blessed are those who are moldable, who are uh, controllable, who can follow the directions of the Lord, who offer themselves to the Lord, their bodies as living sacrifices, as holy and acceptable to the Lord. And they're willing to ask the question, Lord, what is your will in this? And then I conform my will to his will. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful. They shall be receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, 
they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, he said, and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. There's some wonderful messages in this passage of Scripture about blessed, but this morning, as I think about it, I, I would maybe, uh, there's a couple of other blessedness that, that I might add in this, and, and, and certainly I'd never add to Scripture, but I would say blessed are the balanced, okay, amen? <laughs> are y'all with me on that? It's good to be balanced, okay, and not be out of control. I mean, sometimes you can be on a super high, sometimes on a super low, sometimes you can be very, very friendly, sometimes you can be very, very mean. Blessed are the balanced, amen? Blessed are those who think before they speak, praise God. And, and, you know, and then there's another blessedness that I want to speak of this morning, and that is blessed are the rope holders. What are we talking about this morning? Well, obviously, we're focused on those who lowered the Apostle Paul out of Damascus so that he could continue to reach others with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, this is an interesting passage because in this passage, what we find is that the Apostle Paul is in Damascus now and the governor of this area under King Artis has, has, has consented to the Jews who lived in Damascus that they were to arrest Paul and they were to put him to death. There was a plot on his life. By the way, this is not the only time that Paul had a death sentence put on his life. There are other times too. As a matter of fact, he was stoned and left for dead on a number of occasions and there, there's so many other things that happened in his life and we look at him and we think to ourselves, man, this was a courageous man. But at this point in his life, I think he was a little bit fearful of what was about to happen because there was a plot out on him and the governor had not only listened to the Jewish leaders and said, okay, you can arrest the apostle Paul, or you can arrest Saul, but the governor also said, furthermore, I am going to get our police force, our military, to hunt for him and search for him. And we're going to keep an eye on the entrance and the exit to this great city. And if we see him, we got him. Well, you know, we don't know a whole lot about the believers in Damascus. We know from the scriptures that when Paul got saved, that God already had some people in Damascus who were believers. And when Paul ended up there, Ananias uh, took him under his wing and, 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 and introduced uh, Paul to all of the, some of the believers in Damascus and helped him out and stuff like that. But at this point in Paul's ministry, after many days had passed, and after he had been very vocal about the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, I want you to keep this in mind. The Christian hope and the Christian belief is fundamentally that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, and that his teachings are true, and that we abide in him. That's our belief as Christians. We're not out to just hate on people, or we're not out to hate on anyone. But we are out to follow Christ. 
And sometimes that means that we have to agree to disagree with those who don't walk with Christ. And so at any rate, the Bible tells us that they became aware of this plot. And so in response to the plot, the Bible says that they lowered Paul out of a uh, out of uh, probably a window on the wall to Damascus. Damascus was a great city. It was walled. There were entrances and exits. And apparently they lowered him out of a window in a basket down to the ground, perhaps on a dark, cloudy night when the moon was not shining and the stars, you could not see the glory of the stars. And so they lowered him out so that he could get on with the mission of spreading the gospel. And I'm sure that probably they didn't want to see the man killed also. But this is why I think the rope holders are blessed. Wonderful people. By the way, by the way that word blessed means that, uh, that, that you are in a place of, of great blessing. That your life, you may not realize it, but you are in a place of great blessing and the favor of God is on you. Blessed are the rope holders. The rope holders are blessed because their efforts here in Damascus illustrate for us the power of teamwork in the church. The Bible teaches us that we are part of the body of Christ. In Romans chapter 12, it says that every part of the body of Christ has a function and a purpose. And therefore, the, 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 the hand cannot say to the eye or to the foot or to some other part of the body that you're not needed. As a matter of fact, the scripture tells us that every one of us who belongs to the body of Christ have a function and a purpose. And God designed it that way so that with teamwork, we might advance the cause of God and His glory in this world. It means that we are all in this together. There are no lone rangers in the body of Christ. And by the way, I have found the best way to learn how to forgive people is to be offended by them. Uh-oh, that's not very much fun, is it? I've learned that the best way to learn how to love someone is to put their interest ahead of my own. I have learned that in the body of Christ, with the assembled people of God together, that we begin to put on Christ-likeness in an accelerated fashion. I was just thinking this past week about some things in my life, and I was thinking how, how much less challenged I would be if I were in this particular situation over here. And then I thought to myself, well, that would be wonderful. I would have no problems. I would be just perfect, and I'd just be praising God. And, you know, it, I'd be like David out there on the hillside in the middle of the night looking up the stars and just giving glory to God all by myself out there with some sheep. And then I thought about those smelly sheep. The Bible calls a sheep for a reason. And yes, it's wonderful to be on a mountaintop when everything is perfect, but it's down in the valley with people that you learn how to practice Christ-likeness. And I got news for you. Sometimes we can get so desirous of that mountaintop experience that we can remove ourselves from anything and everyone that might slightly offend us and we can go to that mountaintop, but pretty soon we find that we're all alone. God has you in the body of Christ 
so that you might be able to grow and use the gifts that God has endowed you. Some of those are talents, some of those are spiritual gifts, and some of those are just opportunities that present themselves to for you to walk in the good works that he's called you to walk in. It's about teamwork. And listen, the Apostle Paul learned in this passage that it's really not a one-man show. Because as I said, when he was recounting what happened to him and how he had to get lowered out of Damascus, over the Damascus wall on a basket, he spoke about this. And it's interesting, when you look at this passage of Scripture, in Acts chapter 9, the word, he, the word that Luke uses for a basket is a word that means uh, kind of like a hamper, a big hamper, or a large basket type thing. But the word the Apostle Paul uses in 2 Corinthians in verse 33 is a basket that describes a woven basket, kind of like a big giant sack that's woven together. Now, I'll just think about this for a moment. That would have been very humiliating to me if I was put in a sack and lowered over a wall and then when I finally got to the ground, I hope they let him down easy, don't you? <laughs> I had to scramble out of that sack and then make my way out of the vicinity of Damascus and get to Jerusalem. And you know, this is, this is interesting because remember who Paul is now. Paul is that Pharisee of Pharisees who is high-minded, better than all the other Pharisees, and then boom, he gets humiliated as he comes to Christ. And therefore, when he's talking to the church in Corinth, he's able to say to them, when I am weak, then I am strong. He said, the thorn in the flesh was given to me so that it would keep me from becoming too proud. He learned that he could not do it on his own. Paul was an incredible evangelist. But that incredible evangelist would not have a ministry were it not for the rope holders that were letting him go. I want you to see this this morning. Rope holders are blessed and necessary in the church because they fulfill the functions that keep the wheels turning, that make mission trips around the world possible, that make ministry in this environment possible. Rope holders are those who take their talents and their gifts and their abilities and they use them to hold the rope to keep the chaos from escaping into the world and destroying people. We hold the rope together for the glory of God. Rope holders illustrate the power of teamwork in the church. I have a feeling that one of these rope holders, and we don't know, we, we presume they were men. There's probably some women involved in this too. We presume that, that, uh, that these people that were holding rope, they must have had strong hands and stout arms and stout legs, a strong back. But you know what else is noteworthy here? In order for them to have access to a window on the wall of Damascus, it's possible that at least one of them had a room or a home in that wall. They were there. The moment of opportunity had arrived. And they knew in that moment that God required them to function in the gifts that they had. 
I got to tell you something. The church needs people who will employ the gifts that God has given. The church needs people to understand the stewardship of everything in our lives. The money that we have. The energies that we have. The intellect that we have. The love that we have. The faith that we have. The hope that we have. The connections that we have. All of these things are a gift from God and a stewardship for us to use as part of the body of Christ. And you... You are that person if you belong to him. Don't short sell yourself. You need others around you. I read a story recently about Jim Cimbala. I don't know if you remember who he is, but he was the pastor in a church in New York. And you may have heard about his church, just a thriving church. But when he first went to this church, it was decrepit. It was Basically, it was just weak. There was, there was nothing there. It was, there was crime that was plaguing the city. It was just a, a desperate situation. And one Sunday, as he gathered up to preach the word, and he looked out and saw the devastation around him, the weakness, the corruption, the... He said, I can't preach. He said, I'm sorry, I just can't preach right now. And he began to weep. And he began to just, you know, just cry out. And, and you know, a, a, a strange, he, he said, you know, if God doesn't do something here, he said, I just don't know what, what we're going to do. And he went down on his knees. And he asked somebody to play the piano. And, you know, for a preacher that can't preach, that's embarrassing. But what happened was, slowly but surely, people began to come down and they began to seek the Lord and pray and cry out. And in that process, God did a work of transformation in a very unlikely place. Because God's people decided to employ the opportunity and the gifts they had to hold the rope, to do their best to advance the kingdom of God and glorify the Lord. We need rope holders and we need some with strong hands. But we need people who understand the value of teamwork. Secondly, I want you to notice something else about this passage and these rope holders. The Bible tells us that in this passage that the Jews had plotted to kill Paul. You know, the truth is that evil never sleeps. And when we are trying to do something good for the glory of God, and there are people that are getting saved, and Paul had been very successful in Damascus. He'd been convincing the Jewish population there that Jesus was the Messiah. And, and God had been doing a work of grace in his heart. But, but you know what happens when we begin to serve the Lord and we begin to have fruitfulness for the Lord? The world takes notice, but so does the enemy. And the enemy began to make plans to get rid of the Apostle Paul. I love this because you know what this teaches me? It teaches me that though the enemy have plans to harm you and to hurt you, God has plans to heal you and to strengthen you. It tells me that the enemy may have his schemes about what he wants to do to stop what you're doing, what God's doing in you, but the Bible says that God is always one step ahead of him. And even in the sorrows, and even in the confinement, and even in the plots of death, 
God is working through you. Don't ever forget that. The Bible says a seed must die and fall to the ground before it brings forth fruit. And by the way, God is working in your life when you die to self, when you give into the Lord, when you give up to the Lord. He takes that meager offering and he does something explosive and wonderful. But the Bible tells us that the body of Christ grows as every member does its part in love. In love. And here's what happens now. There's a plot on his life. And in that moment and in that season, the rope holders are blessed because they illustrate the loyal opposition to evil. Are you a rope holder? Are you willing to stand against the evil tide that is consuming our world today? You better get ready because the decision is coming to you. I don't want to be ugly and unkind, but I'm going to speak the truth in love. The Bible teaches us that children are a heritage of the Lord. And I personally believe that unless the life of the mother is in jeopardy, that any abortion should be off the table. I also believe, though, that if a a mother's life is in jeopardy, there needs to be a process so that that can be confirmed. And then it's it's up to the husband and wife to do what they feel that God has called them to. This is why we ought to be able to celebrate the overturning of Roe v. Wade. It's put it back into the hands of the people for the people to decide for themselves. But just because Roe v. Wade has removed that what they call a constitutional right to have an abortion, and by the way, it's a child... You know, not a choice. It's not a fetus. Maybe if you've seen that commercial of the fetus versus the child, it's, it, it should be played over and over again. But, but again, just because that has come back to the states now does not mean that the battle is over. Let me just explain what I'm talking about. Some of you may have heard about this. In Ohio right now, Groups that are supportive of abortion are already crafting legislation right now that will term it women's health. And if the legislation passes muster in Ohio, that will mean that anything that you do or say that might stand against abortion could be termed illegal. It's not just happening in Ohio. Friends, this is coming to Florida. They are working on it right now. That industry is spending millions of dollars preparing right now. And it's used under the term women's health. I'm just letting you know what I heard from the Florida Family Policy Council this week on the Shepherd Radio. The other thing that might be surprising to you is that women's health now is also being applied to the trans movement. So if someone thinks they might want to change their 
gender, then again, this would become a constitutional right for anyone. This is why all of the hullabaloo this past week with the Defense Department bill, why it came up, and you may have not even heard about this, but, but the, the bill that got passed made sure that the armed forces were not going to take public funding and use it to facilitate abortion or you know, uh, some kind of transgender change. I'm just telling you that evil never sleeps and those who have this agenda are pushing it and I'm making, an, I'm making an appeal to the people of God. Do you understand and do you discern right from wrong? If you don't hold the rope and you just let it go, I promise you it will be more chaos in our world. You know, uh, years ago, J.P. Moreland, who is a great apologist, he was a professor, and he was having a conversation with a Hollywood producer about, uh, about the, uh, the value of, of, um, of dolphins. You know, flipper, porpoise. I know that's, there's a difference between the, the porpoise and the dolphin, but he was talking about how, how dolphins are, or is it porpoise? I don't know, it's flipper, okay? I don't, I don't remember at the moment. Somebody correct me. Some of our biologists out there. He was having a conversation with these, and this Hollywood producer apparently was very smug and very smart-alecky because he told, he told J.P. Moreland, he said, I believe that dolphins have as much intrinsic value and worth as human beings. Now think about that for just a moment. This professor went beyond the bounds of recognizing the beauty of nature and the created order and our responsibility to care for these things. He was placing dolphins on the same level as human beings as part of creation. And J.P. Moreland told him, said, if you promote this sort of idea, you will destroy the fabric of humanity. Why is that? I'll tell you why. Because if you can promote dolphins to that place, then who's to say you can't promote an ant to that place? Who's to say that a human life is not more valuable than that of a dolphin? I had a conversation with a dear friend this past week, and he gave me a scenario, which I think is pretty apropos. And that scenario is that if you're coming, if you're driving on a mountain road, and you're Let's say you're, on in a one, you're in one lane and you're driving down a mountain road and you come around a corner and all of a sudden there's a squirrel in the road. You have a choice and your choice is this. You, you can't stop the car, okay? It's already over with. You can't do that. Your brakes won't make it in time. But the choice is, would you run over the squirrel and survive or would you run off the cliff and destroy yourself? And I think that even those, as my friend pointed out, in the radical eco-group that you know, promotes uh, nature above humanity. And by the way, a lot of those folks would just be happy enough if they could control the population and take away, you know, many humans, a third of the population, just so that, the, you know, the forest could grow or whatever. But anyway, most of those people, even those people, in the moment of a decision, they would probably choose to run over the squirrel rather than drive off the cliff or into the wall. But can you imagine a world that devalues human life so much that it's okay to put an end to their existence because after all, they're no more valuable than a dolphin. 
I want you to think about this for just a moment because those who promote abortion, they have to come to that conclusion that that person inside a womb is not really a person, but it's an inconvenience. And I just have to tell you that uh, it's time for God's people to understand right from wrong. Somebody says, well, you can't legislate morality. I got news for you. You can legislate morality. You know why? Because the speed limit says you got to go 55 or 70. That's somebody's morality. The, 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 the sign says that no trespassing. Okay, that's somebody's morality. Don't get on my turf. I mean, we can legislate morality in that sense. But what we can't do is force everybody to believe something that they, that they just don't believe. But what does happen for a believer is, listen to me, when you accept Christ, He begins to wash you in His Word, and you begin to understand right from wrong. And so, I just say that these rope holders, they... It wasn't that they hated the governor of Damascus. It wasn't that they were opposed to all the Jews in Damascus. It's just that they knew that they needed to stand for what is right. And they did so by putting a bullseye on themselves. Are you willing to do that? Jesus said... If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Come hell or heaven, we're going to follow Christ. I wrote this in my notes. Listen to me. Jesus said, if you're weary and heavy laden, come to me and I'll, you'll find rest for your souls. And then he says, I want you to take my yoke and I want you to put it on yourself. And the yoke was something that had at least two sides. You had this side and you had this side. And what happens is if you take the yoke of Christ and put it on and you walk with Him, you will be in agreement with Him and not the world. When it comes to making a decision about how you will stand and what you will do, the question is whether you'll stand in the day of evil and you'll oppose evil. The question is, are you walking with Christ in this? Or... Have you unyoked and you are walking in the world? And my friends, if you unyoke from Christ and try to walk in the world, you will not find rest for your souls. You will be a divided man or woman. One more thing i got to say real quickly and then we're done. And you said, well, that's what preachers always say. Okay. Number three, third thing about rope holders I want you to see today, and that is this. Rope holders are blessed and blessed because their efforts orchestrate the growth of the kingdom. It's obvious that when these guys put the Apostle Paul down on that rope and they let him go, they participated. He went to Jerusalem. He became introduced to the apostles through Barnabas and he became a great uh, minister of the gospel. He planted churches. But it, were, it was their efforts that opened up the door for more gospel messages to ring out. It's because they did what God told them to do in the moment of decision that we have about more than half of the New Testament which was written by the Apostle Paul. How about you? Are your efforts about growing the kingdom or fulfilling some kind of personal agenda? i got to say it real quick this morning. 
If you make decisions based on what you feel or what you think, but you don't consider the long-term implications of what, how that affects your family or your church or whatever, you might just be on a hobby horse and you better hold on. Our efforts should always result in the glory of God and in the salvation of people and in the growth of God's kingdom. That's what matters. So make your decisions accordingly for your family, for your church, for your business, for your own personal life. Make your decisions based on whether or not God's kingdom will grow in you, through you, and around you. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word now. Lord God, we just pray that you'll help us to be rope holders in the best sense of that word. Father, because our society is so fracturing over these terrible, terrible things that are being pushed upon us. Father, I pray for courage for your people. And I pray, oh God, we'll never shirk our duty and responsibility to be that link in the chain, that salt and that light that you've called us to be for your glory and for the salvation of others. And we ask this in Jesus' name.